Moments ago, the numbers for America's economic growth, or GDP, were just released. Numbers show the U.S. economy grew by 4.1 percent in the second quarter of 2018. That is the fastest growth rate since 2014. Our GDP growth figures have surged to 8.2 percent. The growth is at a two-year high, beating all expected estimates. You can see why investors are concerned. It's the world's second largest economy, and after accelerating in the fourth quarter, China is apparently losing momentum. Uh, growth comes in 7.7 percent year over year. It seems now. to be that economic growth is is not enough anymore. If if, if you look at voters around, um, you know, the Western countries, whether they are left, right, or center, they they. Somehow demand more, and this is something that European ne leaders need to address. In the midst of the Great Depression, economists and policymakers settled on an aggregate indicator of output as the best way to measure a society's economic progress. Ever since, the indicator they devised, gross domestic product, GDP, has reigned as the most important metric of economic well being worldwide. But today, amid rapid technological change and widening inequality, over-reliance on GDP has led to a significant misunderstanding of people's welfare and interests. As a result, most economies and the policymakers who lead them are not properly planning for the future. That, at least, is the view of the award-winning economist and author Diane Coyle, who joins us today from the University of Cambridge, where she is the Bennett Professor of Public Policy, Coyle has spent years critiquing the shortcomings of modern economic theory and arguing that policymakers everywhere must take a long, hard look at how they manage and measure economic growth. Let's give her a call. Hi, Diane. Thanks so much for joining us today on this episode of PS Editor's podcast. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Hope all is well today. It is, and uh, very much looking forward to this conversation, so let's get right to it. I want to begin with a topic that you've spent a long time thinking about, and that's the ingredients for what makes a strong, sustainable economy. Now, in many ways, everything starts with measurement, and for about a century, the most widely accepted indicator of a society's economic well-being has been gross domestic product, or GDP. Why is our reliance on GDP so problematic, in your view? GDP is a measure that was uh, put together during the Second World War, and it's the kind of measure that really suits the economy we had in those post-war years of, of mass production and much more manufacturing-based. And it's a, a measure of the kind of society that we had um, almost a century ago and the things that people thought were valuable or important at the time. So this is the era of Keynesian e economics and there had been the experience of depression and war, so the focus was on stable and high levels of employment and economic growth. And it always left out some important things. It left out accounting for nature and the externalities caused by using resources or, or pollution. And it left out from the beginning unpaid work in the home. So over time, those things have become more pressing and more important. And the digital technologies that we have now are importantly changing the boundary between what happens in the market, which GDP does measure, and what we do at home. To give one example, um, booking your travel or um, doing your banking is something that you now do for yourself at home online. 
So those activities have, have crossed back over what economists call the production boundary. So although it was always important to have a measure of um, caring activity in the home, that, that boundary is fuzzy now. And the signals we're getting from the GDP statistics not only leave out some important economic and social values, but actually a kind of misleading about what we would think of as the of the, as the standard economy because of technological change. Mm, okay. Now those technolo- those technological advances, um, you know, have come on relatively quickly, and, and they are helping economies become much more productive, as you note. And yet, the the GDP numbers that we see today don't necessarily reflect these these changes. And I think you've termed it, and others have called it, the productivity puzzle. Can you help explain what that puzzle is? If you look at the trend line in um, output per hour or what we would call total factor productivity. So the um, um, relation between the resources going into production and the output coming out, it seems to have flatlined since around 2007-2008. And in this country, in the UK, if the previous trend had continued, then GDP would be about one-fifth, 20% higher than it currently is. So it's a really big puzzle. And It's fair to say economists don't really understand why it's happening. One um, suggestion that Robert Gordon is associated with is that actually the new technologies just aren't very interesting. They are nothing like the great inventions of the early 20th century, everything from the internal combustion engine to the spread of electricity to to indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has quite a lot of advocates. Um, My research is looking at the measurement questions and whether the GDP figures we have actually capture what's going on in a very intangible digital economy. And I'm pretty convinced that they are a misleading guide, but I don't know how much of the productivity puzzle that's going to explain. Mm, And there are some kind of obvious headwinds as well. There are aging populations in the Western economies. There's the hangover from the financial crisis in some countries. Um, uh, There's a debt overhang um, also left over from the financial crisis. And so there are many, many reasons that might contribute to the productivity puzzle, but it's an extraordinarily sharp discontinuity in, in the series, the time series that we observe. Right, okay. I mean, there's another suggestion that we just need to be more patient, that it takes time for the diffusion of general purpose technologies to show up in productivity data. Do you put much weight uh, on that argument that we just need to wait? I think there is something in that. If you take one innovation that's clearly helping businesses become more productive, like using cloud computing, then it's clearly taking some time for that to diffuse and for businesses to reorganize the way they operate around this new capability. So so I think there is something in that. But on the other hand, there has been a kind of continuous progression in digital technology for, um, you know, getting on for 20, 25 years now. So I don't think it explains that discontinuity in output per head. Yeah, okay. Um, So we have a problem with how we measure, um, and you've proposed a new framework that will more accurately pull statistics into something called an asset dashboard. What would this dashboard look like? How would it work? Which assets would be included? And I guess most importantly, do you think that policymakers and the public would embrace an indicator of economic welfare that was not just a single easy-to-digest number? Well, your you, you last part of that question is, is the hardest, so I'm going to come to that last. Um, I think there's a real appetite for looking at something that isn't GDP 
we had the Bre the Brexit referendum here a couple of years ago, famously and uh, notoriously. And um, one of the academics who was trying to um, explain to the general public what the issues were ahead of the referendum went to the northeast of England and was talking about what had happened to GDP. And a woman in the audience called out, that's your GDP, not mine. Um, in fact, she used stronger language than that, but I'm not going to repeat <laughs> it on the podcast. So, but, but there is that wide sense because many people in the United States and the United Kingdom and elsewhere haven't seen their real incomes go up for a long time. There's that sense that whatever GDP is measuring, it's not measuring progress or prosperity in some fundamental sense. My thinking in um, trying to explore using assets as a framework to measure economic welfare is that it is a measure of what is it that people can access that will help them lead the kind of lives that they want. So financial wealth is obviously part of that, but it also um, includes infrastructure. Can they access good broadband and good transportation? Human capital, have they had the education and skills training that they need to get a good job and, and earn a decent living? Natural capital, can they access green spaces? Do they have clean air to breathe? Um, social capital, are they in a community that is cohesive, doesn't have a high crime level, can provide public goods without people free riding? So this is the the thinking. And I think it would be important not only to measure national aggregates or averages, but also what access do people have in different places. And one of the phenomena that we've seen politically in so many Western economies is left behind places. People um, people who are not doing so well are in places that are not doing so well. And most people don't want to move. Most people don't want to and can't move to the big city and get a high skill job with Amazon or whatever it might be. And um, your question about would a dashboard work? Um, I don't know. And one of the areas that um, my team is researching is, are there ways of representing something a bit more complicated than one number that makes it easy for people to understand? So it's partly not only what are the numbers, what are we measuring, but how, how are they represented and communicated? And how do you have that public debate? Information affects behavior. And so what we gather our information about, how we how we describe success affects what we strive for. If GDP is what we think is success, people will strive for GDP. And political leaders all the time say, you know, uh, look at what we've done. I've, I, you know, they always put it, you know, I've succeeded in getting the economy to grow up at 6%. The question is, by doing that, they focus policies on things that will increase GDP. But better measurement and better economic indicators are certainly not a panacea. I mean, policymakers would still need to act on this better information. And how we act on, on better information, whether it's for uh, building infrastructure like roads or bridges or schools or hospitals, all of that takes a certain tolerance of risk. Some risk is, is greater than others. And as you've written, in the past, some governments seemed at least apparently more willing to take big risks. And I think you've quoted and cited a couple examples, like the Erie Canal, for instance, um, seemed like madness to Thomas Jefferson. But New York State forged ahead and, and the project quickly reaped dividends. Do you think that governments, whether national or local, are more risk-averse today? Um, and if they are, how has that risk-averse nature affected growth? 
if you look back to the Victorian era, it is quite extraordinary to see the the confidence and the scale of some of the investments and activities they undertook. And um, certainly in my country, we are still living on the infrastructure that was built by people 150 years ago. So what was it about then that made them decide they had to build a century and a half worth of capacity? What, what prompted that vision? And it seems to me that there is something self-fulfilling about that kind of political and economic ambition. And if you have um, the right kind of leadership that can line everybody up and point them in the same direction, working towards the same goal, then it can bring about its own success. And the kind of policy making we have now doesn't allow for that sort of self-fulfilling vision. If you think about it in terms of what economists do in working in, in government, it's dominated by cost-benefit analysis, which is a fine tool for small-scale projects and, and marginal changes. But it will always tell you it's a stupid risk to to build the Erie Canal. So it's it's the wrong kind of tool for thinking about what are the big things you want a society to achieve. And um, one of the reasons we have such poor infrastructure now in many countries is that there's been cheese pairing on the maintenance of existing infrastructure because it's easy to cut those costs and we haven't been building enough of the, the new infrastructure. Now this isn't easy because there are loads of white elephants in terms of infrastructure as well and so many of these projects go over budget and uh, take many many years to complete. But on the other hand if you think about some of those examples, you know, Sydney Opera House is a famous one, you wouldn't really want it not to be there either. So working out how to um, decide which are the, are the grand schemes that you will introduce and align everybody around seems a key policy question and a key political question, actually, if we want people to have confidence in a better future and in the very idea of progress. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems, though, that that, that idea of the political challenge is, is one that's contained in Western democracies in terms of being risk averse and, and taking, taking risks and spending lots of money. But if you look to countries like China, which has a bit more authoritarian control over, over government uh, spending and policy, there seems to have been, at least uh, you know, in recent years, more willingness to spend on big infrastructure projects. So is there a political element to this, to this question of, of risk averse? And do you think that perhaps there are, uh, you know, these are examples that, that different political models might be better suited to taking risk in, in today's economic environment? Well, I think actually China well illustrates the dilemma because they certainly have the grand vision and they've put the money into it. But on the other hand, it's also pretty clear that a lot of the infrastructure they're building is never going to get the kind of um, the kind of use that would justify it in anything like normal cost benefit terms. I, I don't think it's obvious that it's easier to do to have this kind of vision in authoritarian regimes because there are examples of um, the same kind of thing happening in, in, in democracies, whether you look back to the 19th century or the middle of the 20th century when our great cities on both sides of the Atlantic were doing exactly the same kinds of schemes at, at city level. Um, so I'm not so sure it's about the kind of regime as about the confidence of political leaders, no mm. matter what regime they're in.
Hmm, okay. Now you, you touched on the, the cost-benefit analysis and some of the challenges. I wonder if, if we could kind of pick that apart a little bit more. I mean, you, you wrote for, for Project Syndicate in a recent column that efficiency isn't everything and that we should be glad that earlier, genera- earlier generations were not tethered to this idea of cost-benefit analysis. You've touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if we could go a bit further. How would it be possible, do you think, in your mind, to convince skeptical publics in an era of growing inequality that, that we don't necessarily need to be as, as efficient as possible with our spending? I think many people who've experienced the decline of the public services and public realm would actually be quite sympathetic to the idea that um, the idea of efficiency and value for money has been a bit overdone. If we'd had a, a nothing but cost-benefit analysis, we'd be living in a much more impoverished kind of um, kind of society. But I think one of the compelling arguments at the moment is just this sense of not being sufficiently resilient to shocks. There's actually a good example in business. Businesses businesses become incredibly efficient in that cost-benefit sense in minimising the amount of inventory that they hold in just-in-time production. But we've already seen a few examples of the lack of resilience of those systems when there's a natural disaster, the floods in Thailand interrupting the auto supply chain, for example. And we might be seeing more of that with um, the disruptions to trade that are occurring at the moment. So um, that there's a, clearly a trade-off between the most economic efficiency you can extract out of something and some kind of engineering or system system resilience. Hmm, okay. I, perhaps it goes back to that to the question on GDP and an alternative measure. How do you present these ideas to a public that might come to the conversation a bit skeptical? But yet, if you show them, and one, one of the yes, you're right. And one of the things we're not great at explaining in our statistics or in the kind of commentary is about uncertainties and risks and do you want to have options and there are option values in taking certain courses of action. Mm, right, okay. Yeah, another another piece that you wrote for us that I, uh, I found really interesting, especially the examples, um, is this idea the regulation um, uh, can be a driver, somewhat counterintuitive, counterintuitively to growth. You've argued that regulation in fields like, uh, I believe, mobile, mobile technology inspired entire industries to sprout up uh, and to grow and to develop. But uh, building on this idea of, re- of, of regulation as a benefit, after two generations uh, of, of uh, deregulation, especially in the United States, um, this idea sounds like it would be a difficult sell, um, at least in the current political climate. Can you talk about how regulation can stimulate economic growth um, uh, with specific examples? The oldest example of um, uh, good regulation is actually um, consumer protection. The early days of capitalism in the Victorian era are complete free-for-all with products that not only didn't do what they said, but actively harmed people, patent medicines that killed and so on. And so that kind of regulation, I think, um, everybody kind of appreciates that it's needed and you just want to be aware of the trade-offs and not letting it get out of hand. There, I think, you know, just talking back to the last bit of the conversation, cost-benefit analysis is a great tool for understanding if a proposed regulation is is really a sensible one and, and proportionate. Um, But you can also think about regulation as something that builds trust in business and also reduces 
uh, the costs for business and en enables markets to grow. And the mobile example there is great because it was a European regulation that established um, what became the GSM technical standards. And that very quickly got all the manufacturers and all the network equipment suppliers onto the same technical standard. And it meant that there was very quickly a global market for the equipment and the handsets. And that equally quickly then brought down the prices and that enabled the mobile telephony revolution throughout the developing world, which has been extraordinary. And you know, the, it's, it's not so much digital in general as um, smartphones in particular that are absolutely transforming the economy and society now. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example of regulation as a coordinating device that helps businesses and, and, and grows markets. And if you're a business that exports, um, you know, clearly one set of regulations is always better than multiple sets of regulations, as you know, as British producers might be about about to find out leaving leaving the single market. Um, so, the idea that regulation is always a cost and always bad, I think, is is just mistaken. Hmm, okay. You know, you, you're saying that you think people will be sceptical. I'm not so sure. I think the tide is turning on. Um, digital for, for, for certain and there's really quite an active debate there about has there been too little regulation rather than too much well i i want to wrap up by taking that a bit further uh, and asking kind of more of a direct question everything that we've discussed so far sounds very reasonable and prudent um, and yet there are those who question whether modern economics can actually deliver the future that you envision and I'm drawing on a conversation that was recently had at the Festival of Economics conference in Bristol, which you programmed, where scholars debated whether economics today is preparing economics, or sorry, uh, preparing economists to, quote, care about the future. So let's end there if we could. How must economics change to enable policymakers to confront all of these myriad challenges like inequality, climate change? transportation and poverty how do we help economists care more a lot of individual e economics researchers in universities and think tanks care really deeply about these questions of sustainability and what kind of society do we want and are doing um their you know some fantastic research on that the challenge is how does that translate into a big picture everybody in society um, accepts and is acting on. And I think part of the translation is, what do we teach new economic students? I've been working for a number of years now on um, changing the, the basic curriculum in economics. There's something called Core um, the Economy. It's an open access online resource, a free textbook, if you like, that um, does put at its heart questions about distribution and and the environment and sustainability because the undergraduate curriculum just hasn't changed very much and so universities churn out many thousands of, of economics graduates with quite a an impoverished view of what economics says about such questions so that's part of it there are whole generations of people who, who did their economics a while ago and uh, are now working in government and public policy who have this sort of much more reductionist approach to economics. And I don't think, I don't think there's an easy answer there, apart from getting um, all of those e uh, scholarly economists to talk more and communicate more about what they 
think is important and it just takes time to shift the general climate of ideas I think and make um, all those individual efforts add up into a really kind of fruitful and rich um, picture of how to think about this incredibly complicated, connected, dynamic economy that we have built in the world. Hmm. So it's not really a question of whether or not economists care, it's whether that caring could be implemented in the current economic structure that we have. Yeah, I think of it as a, a massive coordination problem because loads of individuals care um, and even the most ardent free marketeer would, would care about their children and grandchildren. Um, and, and it's all about what a kind of what kind of story do we tell ourselves about our collective effort and the legacy that we are going to leave for our kids. Well, I think that's a nice place to end it. Um, a fascinating look at how to measure and plan for a more resilient economic future. So thank you very, very much for your time today, Diane. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Diane Coyle, professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge and author of GDP, A Brief but Affectionate History. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. Bruno.